All right, hello, and welcome back to Rupture Radio. Jeremy here, as usual, and this week I am joined by two activists from the Reform and Revolution Caucus in the Democratic Socialists of America. Both join me to discuss recent elections and protests in the US, along with general events. You can find more information on the Ornor Caucus in the episode description. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can also find the Patreon link below. All right, so I'll go straight to the episode now. I'm delighted to be joined on the line by, for a second time, Ty Moore, an activist in Tacoma, Washington. Hello, Ty. How's it going? And for the very first time, Eve Sidechick, an activist and Somerville organizer in Massachusetts and recent DSA candidate for city council. Welcome, Eve. Yeah, thanks so much for having us. Last time we checked in on the US in, on the podcast, it was January 2021, which feels uh, like a lifetime ago. And at the time, we were discussing the inauguration of Biden, the far-right riots in Washington, and what was next for the American left post-Bernie. I think a, a good place for us to kick off today is to start with the recent midterm elections, which took place on November 2nd. These were mainly smaller contests for city council, state senates, etc. That's my understanding anyway, and so it didn't get a massive coverage in Ireland. But in the US, it seemed there was a poor performance for the Democrats and a bit of a resurgence for the Republicans. In some analysis, including one article on the Reform Revolution website, which I'll link below, um, it was stated that this is now being used to kind of hammer the social left and came, claimed that the losses and the downswing uh, came from the Biden administration going too far to the left. Uh, could you fill us in on a bit about these recent elections and what took place? You know, exactly as you said, that there's you know, the tension between the corporate wing of the Democratic Party that, you know, has traditionally been and continues to be dominant and the now surging, you know, left wing of the party that, you know, came most to prominence in Bernie Sanders' campaign, but is reflected in, you know, what's called the squad, which is now a group of six or seven DSA candidates in Congress or, or left-wing candidates, maybe not in DSA, but that works closely with the DSA um, uh, congressional members who have pushed things like the Green New Deal, Medicare for all, free college, free childcare, you know, a massive expansion of the social safety net, generally $15 minimum wage, these kind of issues that became extremely popular, not just with the Democratic Party's electoral base, but nationally, um, even in places that Republicans won last year, like Florida, um, a minimum wage hike also won uh, on the ballot. So you see sort of these contradictions even um, in so-called conservative areas of the country where the social policies being promoted by the left wing of the Democratic Party, the class policies being promoted, you know, lo and behold, are popular in working class uh, 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 towns and cities and states all across the country. So Biden, to some degree, felt compelled at the beginning of um, his administration to tack left compared to sort of the neoliberal orthodoxy that he had traditionally um, founded. In some ways, you know, his election campaign was highly contradictory. He, on the one hand, you know, famously promised uh, to, you know, some of his uh, higher uh, end donors that nothing will fundamentally change if he's elected. And on the other hand, you know, to co-opt the Bernie wing of the party um, and, you know, reflecting the real crisis of U.S. capitalism and the pandemic, et cetera, he also embraced, you know, quite expansive and social welfare policies um, and, and in some ways our break with neoliberal orthodoxy. And coming into office with the economic crisis, the pandemic, you know, he set forth to pass quite an expansive social welfare package, a $3.5 trillion, what they call the Build Back Better plan, um, which has not yet passed, which has been the dominant sort of debate in Washington, D.C. Um, and that, you know, um, you know, included raising taxes on big business and was heralded as the most significant social welfare package since, you know, the civil rights era, since Lyndon Johnson's Great Society package, or compared sometimes to even FDR's uh, New Deal. Um, and it would have been, if it had been passed, uh, you know, the biggest sort of transfer of wealth to low-income and working-class people in a long, long time. Um, but it hasn't passed, and Democratic voters were really disappointed, and they stayed home. Young people stayed home, and there was frustration that nothing has changed, um, has set in, and a sense that, well, the Democrats promised big, but once again, completely failed to deliver, even though they control by a narrow margin, but nonetheless control both houses of Congress. So yeah, the Democratic Party base stayed home, 
and the right wing, you know, mobilizing on social issues like, you know, law and order, public safety, um, the sort of anti-woke uh, concerns about, you know, rewriting American history to, you know, on the demands of the uh, Black Lives Matter movement, this kind of stuff, mobilized a far right Republican base to turn out in big numbers. And they won pretty big in the governor's races, the state house, or not the state house, I'm sorry, the city council races, some mayoral races. Um, and that's sort of seen as a precursor to 2022, which will be the big midterm elections for Congress that could, you know, uh, erase the Democratic majorities in the House and the Senate, narrow as they are. It recalls me to the uh, 2020 Democratic primary, where, of course, uh, socialists in the U.S. were largely supporting Bernie. Um, and I remember being worried that if Elizabeth Warren won, it could have this demobilizing effect on um, Democratic voters or on left wing and progressive voters who weren't committed socialists because of the belief that, I mean, her whole self, for example, is like, I'm this policy expert. I'm just going to take care of everything. You don't have to do anything. And that was a big a contrast with Bernie's like not me us message. And I think uh, although Biden is certainly uh, to the right of Elizabeth Warren in important ways, I think we saw a little bit of that where uh, you had um, a big upsurge for the left during the Trump years because there was a sense of a generational crisis in politics um, and unprecedented attacks on working people, which of course were happening under neoliberal democratic uh, presidents like Bill Clinton and Obama as well. Um, but I think that drove a lot of people to the left. And I think now we are seeing uh, a bit of complacency from progressives who, uh, you know, of course, the corporate Democratic Party likes them to believe that everything is just being taken care of. And I think that message was reinforced by proposing these, uh, you know, the, what the progressive wing of the Democratic Party would call like unprecedented transfers of uh, possible transfers of wealth to working people, putting those forward and then being like, oh, no, you know, our rotating villain, Joe Manchin from West Virginia, the senator or Kristen Sinema from uh Arizona have prevented us from doing this thing. Um, and, you know, it's just the usual bait and switch that I think we see from uh, the second most enthusiastic capitalist party in the world. Right. Yeah, I think it's notable for people looking from the outside in, certainly myself, you always see that kind of dynamic um, where forces to the right act as a, a complete block on anything moving forward, when at the same time uh, you've compromised from those in the centre and then it's all blamed on those to the left as if that is the, the issue and it pulls the whole conversation uh, to the right. There was also a, a lot of DSA candidates who ran. Uh, Eve, I know that you ran yourself. How did the socialist left fare in these elections? Some of our most high profile races, like India Walton's race for mayor of Buffalo, which is a city with hundreds of thousands of people in upstate New York, uh, and she was running against uh, the person she had beat in the Democratic primary, who was running a uh, write-in campaign. So his name didn't even appear on the ballot. Um, and I think the left, including myself, uh, especially a couple months out, were really optimistic about that race. Uh, and then the corporate Democratic Party uh, aligned itself with the Republicans. There was a lot of uh, millionaire and billionaire cash that poured into that race against India Walton, who at that point was the Democratic Party nominee and a Democratic Socialist America member, a socialist candidate. Uh, and she ended up losing despite these uh, you know, institutional advantages that she was imagined to have by being a Democratic nominee and getting uh, endorsements by Chuck Schumer, the New York senator, uh, sort of tepid endorsement, but still. And then she ended up losing. And I think that was really disappointing for a lot of people. Uh, as Ty said, we saw of uh, socialist adjacent progressives like um, Nikita Oliver in Seattle uh, lose. And then I myself lost my race in Somerville. Um, so I think that had given people a sense on election night, like if you uh, talk to DSA activists, that we were in a tough spot. And to a sense, in a sense, that's true. But uh, the DSA nationally endorsed candidates, you know, we won 69% of those races. Um, so it was definitely a mixed result and not altogether bad. I think Somerville, where I was running, which is a district of Boston, Massachusetts, that's an, its own politically independent city, but it's, um, it's part of Boston's urban metro area was a bit of a microcosm of it because, you know, in a sense, we ran seven socialists. We had two people on the council already, still on the effort council. So we were playing for a majority. Um, and uh, I lost, 
two of our other people lost, um, but our two incumbents won and we added two more seats. So in a way it was a disappointment because we didn't win majority we were hoping to do and implement our socialist program as best we could in Somerville um, and use those seats to build movements in the way we wanted to. Uh, but we did double our representation on the council. So I think there's um, the, the takeaway for DSA members is that uh, you know, we're making progress, but it was definitely a tough night for the left. I think we uh, faced a lot of the headwinds that Ty was talking about, about reduced turnout from, you know, our kind of progressive base who we're trying to uh, draw to the left and draw into struggle and into socialist politics. Um, and yeah, and, and a big right wing reaction as well, I think played an important role in that. We can talk about that more later, but definitely around, I think, policing and some of these other issues uh, were, were a headwind for socialists on the third. I could just add that, yeah, I think against the background of you know, the last many decades of U.S. society, and even against the backgrounds of the growth of the left over the last few years, DSA is not doing too bad. Socialists are getting elected every election cycle in bigger and bigger numbers. Um, and, you know, in um, Minneapolis, where I spent many years organizing and ran for city council in 2013 myself before there were many socialists doing it, um, we saw for the first time three DSA-backed candidates uh, elected to the 13-member council in Minneapolis. Um, but it was a contradictory result. The mayor who came out who's a corporate candidate um, who uh, came out heavily against the defund the police demand, who was just seen as sort of, you know, the establishment figure. He won decisively and the left challengers to him who were associated with, um, uh, you know, Minneapolis, of course, the site of the mass, the beginning of the mass George Floyd protest, the question of uh, dismantling the police department was on the ballot um, of taking the police department completely apart, firing all the existing officers um, and rebuilding it. It's not quite as radical as that all sounds. It was kind of framed to be quite radical. In practice, there was no, it was very vague. There was no clear promises of what the future funding would be or if it would be defunded or what it would look like. But, you know, it was seen as sort of the preeminent example of the defund. That ballot measure lost. The mayor, who was the main spokesperson against it, won decisively. But at the same time, a ballot measure um, uh, authorizing the city to implement rent control won in Minneapolis. And an even more robust rent control policy passed in St. Paul, the neighboring city. Um, um, and the DSA candidates won. So you you see sort of, you know, the complicated uh, picture that is not the same as, you know, the New York Times or CNN, which have just blasted headlines again and again since the election that, look, this shows that um, the left policies of Bernie Sanders and the left um, are unpopular. Working people are going to move to the Republican Party if the Democrats continue to allow these socialists, to allow these defund the police advocates, to allow these left-wing radicals a platform. We need to have them shut up about socialism, shut up about, um, you know, anything that doesn't, you know, uh, uh, fit with sort of their corporate agenda. So there's this attempt to use all of this to, to shove the left back into its corner. But I think the growth of DSA's successes, um, you know, was mixed. But overall, I think we could say it was a successful day of expanding DSA's electoral footprint across the country, especially at the city level, um, was quite good. And yeah, what Eve discussed, it was a setback um, from what the expectations were. I think they were quite hopeful expectations. Somerville would have been the first city in the U.S. to have a majority DSA city council had Eve and um, and the other two who didn't make it uh, got onto the council. So they weren't, uh, and they only missed those seats by a relatively small margin. So it wasn't too far from having a majority socialist council, which would have been quite a, 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 an impressive step. It wasn't so far from having um, a, a socialist mayor of a significant city in Buffalo had India Walton won. So I think we are seeing the continued strength of the left in DSA, but it's challenging um, in the Biden era when there haven't been sort of mass movements, mass struggles that did characterize politics and DSA's growth um, when Trump was president. Just to, to hang on that point then, um, so you mentioned there's obviously difficulty to 
uh, push for mobilizations under the democratic administration of Biden, whereas in the past with, with Trump, it was obviously either easier to counterpose things. Like, has this led to kind of a hesitancy from the, the unions or the general bodies which would push for these strikes? Um, now, what is the difficulty of cutting through that? Yeah, I mean, I would characterize it as both a difficulty and an opportunity. I mean, I think we see this in some of these you know, blue states where socialists are making progress, like in Massachusetts or in Seattle, where ties at, um, or in again Washington State, where ties at, because the main enemy, right, isn't a strong Republican Party, which basically doesn't exist in a lot of these states, but uh, a Democrat, a corporate Democratic Party establishment. I think DSA has found a lot of success in these areas, you know, because of a more receptive, like less reactionary electorate or um, or sort of people in general consciousness, uh, but also because it's it's illuminating for us to be able to run against the Democratic Party and call out and expose them. Even DSA members who run from, you know, within the Democratic Party are able to, in a kind of Bernie-esque way, uh, call out a corporate Democratic establishment that, um, you know, is not delivering for uh, working people in these states. Like in Massachusetts, we have an 80% supermajority in our state legislature of Democrats, but they're very business friendly and they're reluctant to passing even, you know, common sense reforms that would use working people's life, like rent control, where we have one of the strongest state preemptions in the country. So I think that there are opportunities for socialists in uh, calling out um, Biden's failure to deliver for the working class and to differentiate ourselves as an independent force from the Democratic Party that's uh, really fighting for what working people deserve and not just uh, this narrow horizon of yeah what CNN would say is possible for working people to get in the richest country in the history of the world. Yeah, but it's also true. There is also this demobilizing effect we're, um, we're counting with. So uh, again, it, I think it's, it's, a, it's a contradictory and mixed terrain, but it, it definitely provides a lot of opportunities as well as challenges. We have a situation too where I think the new left DSA and beyond is learning. Um, it grew up under Trump. It grew up as an opposition movement. It grew up as, you know, under protests where, you know, it was a DSA sort of grew out of Bernie Sanders' 2016 campaign and the election of Trump, you know, so clearly with a critique of the Democratic Party corporate leadership, but not under the experience of them in power. And now um, I think there has been a reluctance to break from sort of a mentality of being a loyal opposition uh, within the big tent umbrella of the Democratic Party to being, you know, an open um, opposition. So for instance, yeah, there's been almost no mass struggle, mass protests against Biden's uh, failure, against, um, Eve mentioned earlier, the two main holdouts in the Senate against passing this social welfare climate package, Build Back Better, have been the right-wing corporate oil or coal baron uh, senator of West Virginia, Democrat Joe Manchin, and a corporate uh, Democrat Senator um, Kristen Sinema out of Arizona. And they've been the two main holdouts. Uh, virtually the rest of the Senate actually is ostensibly united behind quite an expansive social welfare and climate package, but they get to hide behind mansion and cinema. Um, but what have they done other than sort of parliamentary maneuvers and press conferences, et cetera? There have been some small protests. Sunrise, the youth climate justice movement has done hunger strikes and regular protests. Uh, the Poor People's Campaign, which is sort of in the tradition of Martin Luther King's Poor People's Campaign, a black led working class uh, campaign has had protests against mansion in West Virginia. Um, but these have rel been relatively small, a few hundred, a few thousand at best. Um, and the socialists in Congress, um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Bernie Sanders, the rest, they have not used their position to build the movement. You know, they could have sat down with the Poor People's Campaign, with Sunrise, with uh, uh, left-wing trade unions that, you know, Bernie Sanders' electoral base and said, all right, to win this thing, we're going to have to have mass protests of tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, even millions in every city in the country to put massive pressure on the corporate Democrats, on big business um, to pass this, you know, generational opportunity at um, an expansion of the, of the social safety net, um, uh, at the expansion of, of investments in clean energy that are obviously direly needed given the climate crisis. Um, none of that happened. <laughs> they did not use their powerful, they, they send out tweets every day saying, you know, call your senator, be, be upset. They have press conferences every day. They're in the mainstream media, on the talk shows every day. But the message that you know, you'll find 
during Bernie Sanders campaign and some of the campaigns that they'll say at certain moments that, well, the only thing that changes things in history is social movements and people getting active. Like that's not unfamiliar. Anybody who's followed Bernie Sanders, AOC, they say that. But they say that generally when actually push comes to shove, when it's time to actually mobilize movements, where are they, unfortunately? And I think it's a reluctance to, um, you know, to break their relationships or to be seen. Bernie Sanders now is chair of the budget committee in the Senate. Um, you know, would he sacrifice that parliamentary position if he, you know, started calling mass protests against fellow Democrats? Probably he would. Um, they would be sacrificing the relationships. And so I think it reflects a, a certain, um, yeah, a certain immaturity or reformist outlook that, you know, is going to continue to lose unless the socialist movement, the labor movement um, develops a more struggle-oriented, mass movement-oriented approach when it actually matters, not just, you know, uh, when it's time during speeches, but when there's an actual policy fight on the floor that can improve working class people's lives. Um, that unless that wing of DSA that Reform the Revolution represents, a wing that promotes the idea that class struggle actually is what gets the goods, uh, and that needs to be linked to our electoral strategy, to our parliamentary strategy when we have candidates at city council or Congress, um, unless that wing of DSA comes to the forefront and can convince the more sort of reformist wing that offers apologies to AOC and Bernie for their um, for their inaction on this, uh, I, I think we're going to continue to disappoint. And that's important because to turn it back to the elections, the reason the Democrats lost their base, the reason people stayed home and were demoralized is because they failed to pass these things. If you don't have a struggle approach, if you don't have a mass mobilization approach, you will not be able to overcome the power of big business to co-opt and buy off um, uh, the electoral you know, candidates. And there's always going to be, as Eve said, some corporate stooge who will play the role of blocking things. Um, and it's going to take a mass movement to overcome that. So, um, and then Democrats disappoint, working class people stay home, the Republicans surge. Um, and that's what we're going to see. That's what we saw this year. And that's what we'll see next year too. Um, if things don't turn around. Yeah, and I think that's a, a very important point. You know, what, what does this capitulation of progressive forces or this failure, or the inability of the um, DSA to make the correct interventions or to, put, to apply the correct pressure, uh, what it means for the problematic strategy that we discussed in the past of someone did the DSA to shift the Democrats to the left or to operate solely in the Democratic Party sphere uh, in the hope of exhort exerting some sort of influence, you know. Um, and I think we should touch on that here, but as both of you are members of the DSA and last time we discussed what the conditions of the DSA was like, last time we spoke, uh, the organization was pushing for recruitment targets and it was on an upswing, it was um, building. Um, so I guess what's the perspective of the DSA now and also what's the state of it in terms of numbers and activity? Yeah, so during that uh, recruitment drive about a year ago, um, DSA surged up to about 95,000 members. Um, and there have been, you know, both folks who have dropped out of activity and new recruits, um, but that number has stayed about the same over the last year. So I think there's a perception among DSA activists that uh, in some ways the membership is sort of stalling around that threshold and that something needs to be done, uh, whether that's more active recruiting or the orientation of our campaign work. Um, in order to break through um, and, you know, hit that, that historic goal that we have of 100,000 members. I think the peak membership of uh, the large, of the Communist Party, which is the lar largest uh, uh, membership at its peak, I, I think it was in the 40s, maybe the 30s, um, was around 100, 110, something like that. So we're kind of getting close to that threshold of the largest socialist organization in U.S. history. But I think there is a, uh, a recognition that, especially in the current climate, that's not going to happen on its own. Um, I think there is a lot of optimism and there's reasons for that. Uh, you know, in, um, for example, in our campaigns in Somerville, uh, we mobilized a lot of people who, some of whom weren't DSA members before or who were only members in paper, because of course, DSA doesn't have 95,000 activists, right? It has, um, you know, we, we usually see activity voting maybe around 15% in terms of people who are coming out to multiple uh, events every month or organizing, uh, you know, in some kind of active organized way with uh, their DSA chapter. So um, part of the big struggle has always been like, well, we could increase our power, 
by um, bringing some of you know these so-called paper members into activity and showing them that you know uh, declaring your socialist affiliation and paying dues to DSA is important. Um, but obviously, you know, we can't get get the goods for the working class unless we're in our communities actually organizing and doing campaign work. So I think we saw a lot of people through these local electoral campaigns in this last cycle. We certainly saw this in Somerville uh, coming into activity. Obviously, DSA had a big membership uh, bump during the uh, uprising for Black Lives in summer of 2020 um, that was connected again, yeah, with people getting angry and, you know, wanting to make a difference and seeing DSA as the way to do that. And I agree. I think we need to um, push, you know, for a, a Marxist approach. I think we've seen that the political unity that in DSA that developed around campaigns like the um, uh, Bernie Sanders campaign, and then also at the chapter level campaigns for local city council seats, uh, state legislature seats, um, can produce definitely a mobilizing effect. Um, and, uh, and yeah, so I, but I, I think it's true. DSA has always grown in fits and starts. You know, sometimes it's because of Trump's election, which obviously led to the big historic boom. And sometimes, you know, AOC wins uh, for the first time in New York and a bunch of leftists have a couple drinks and join DSA on the website at two in the morning, you know, and then it's sort of our job as the people who are involved to um, sit down with them, organize them and, and bring them into struggle. So yeah, I, th I think there are challenges um, and we may see new, you know, we as Marxists, we expect there to be more uh, crises and uprisings. And um, I think, that those have been times of historic growth for DSA, uh, but I also think it's becoming clear we can't just rely on passive accumulation of members, especially because I think the demographics of DSA, the average age is kind of creeping up. There were a lot of people who joined in that big bump, but um, we're not necessarily seeing, you know, people who are in their early 20s or late teens now. Um, you know, I think there's, it's clear that we have to really double down on our campus activism and things like that to pull people into struggle in our youth wing. And we're having some success there too, but I think that's another area where we're really thinking about recruiting. At uh, Northeastern University, which is a big university in Boston, Massachusetts, uh, there were 130 people at their um, launch. So maybe that cuts across the trend I just identified, but I, I spoke at that and I was just amazed to see all of these uh, young socialists. And you know, Northeastern student-based skews more working class, so maybe there's uh, that could be a part of it too. But I think um, we, we can't neglect that either. We don't wanna see the DSA be a sort of expression of this Trump Bernie moment in time. Like it has to be an ongoing uh, organization with its own political life. And I think that's achievable and, and we're working on it, but it's not just going to happen on its own either. Eve touched on, I think the big danger is, yeah, DSA rose up during when Trump's election on the one hand and the two Bernie campaigns on the other was sort of the same main axes of US politics. Um, and because um, I think in practice, you know, there's been debates in DSA about its links and connections with the Democratic Party. Um, formerly, the 2019 DSA convention um, endorsed for the first time, you know, a so-called dirty break strategy, which set the goal very publicly, very clearly of building a working class party of, a, of an eventual split um, uh, and building a political alternative from the Democrats. But in practice, you know, that's not that well known. If you listen to your average DSA candidate, I mean, Eve would be an exception here. You're not going to hear that. Um, and mainly what you do hear is that they are, they run on the Democratic Party ballot line. They are connected to the Democrats. The, the members, the most prominent members of DSA are, of course, the members of DSA in Congress who all ran as Democrats, who caucus with the Democratic Party, who are part of the Democratic Party for all intents and purposes. And people know that, you know, they might know that they're socialists, but their affiliation with the Democratic Party is actually more widely known than their affiliation with DSA. Um, and so when you have the socialists um, being widely seen by most working class people as just the left wing of the Democratic Party. And then you have the Democratic Party failing to deliver once again, as people know it has again and again for decades, um, it discredits the socialist movement. It makes the socialist movement appear as though it's ineffective, incapable, that it makes these big promises, but that in the end, you know, Joe and Bernie together cannot deliver. And I think for DSA to survive in the next period or continue to thrive and grow and develop as a dynamic force and dig roots into you know, frustrated sections of the working class and youth to be a, a force that's seen as a 
you know, radical, combative agent of change. It needs to draw a sharp lines and say, we are not the Democratic Party. We are fighting to build a, a socialist working class alternative to this corporate dominated political party. And unless that becomes a dominant message, not just the message of a few left candidates like Eve um, and a, a wing of the DSA that is not the dominant wing still, unless it becomes the dominant message of DSA and its public representatives, uh, I think there is actually a danger that DSA could fall backwards, that the growth and dynamism we saw over the last few years um, could stagnate and begin to fall backwards. And so I think it's an important political moment. And there are you know, very live debates uh, taking place right now on Twitter, um, on the internal forums, in individual chapters about what the strategy for DSA for the socialist movement going forward. And I think it's, you know, the future remains unwritten, but, um, but it's going to take a struggle and it's going to take the left in DSA getting organized and uh, developing sort of a cohesive uh, uh, vision of an alternative um, approach to, to be able to change things. It's very interesting. Last time you were on the podcast, Ty, uh, yourself and Jess discussed the reactionary protests at Capitol Hill in the wake of um, the Biden admin moving in and, and Trump moving out uh, in Washington. Nearly 10 months later, uh, I think the question is, are reactionary forces still energized and gaining ground in the absence of the Trump admin? Or what's their influence at this stage? Well, it's a little bit contradictory. On the one hand, um, the January 6th insurrection, as it's been called um, in Washington, D.C., um, you know, resulted in a wave of disgust and mass uh, uh, negativity. And it really put some of these far-right organizations and their really despicable beliefs you know, um, in the public debate. I mean, there's been Netflix documentaries and you know, every major news network you know, was just you know, for months and months and even still is endlessly like rehashing you know, how bad it was, um, how terrible these forces are, how much a threat they are to American democracy, et cetera. Um, so on the one hand, you have seen a certain pushing back and mass revulsion against the worst elements of the far right. But unfortunately, you know, the liberal response as opposed to, you know, a working class or socialist response has been dominant. And that liberal response has, you know, mainly focused on reinforcing the sanctity of American democracy and, you know, the sanctity of these hallowed institutions of Congress, um, et cetera, which are, and, and, you know, and even promoting a law enforcement response. This is a, you know, the language of domestic terrorists on the one hand, you know, it's a good thing that the term terrorism is no longer uh, applied in a uniquely racist, anti-foreigner, anti-Islamic way. It's now the term domestic terrorist, which everybody knows refers to right-wing white people, um, um, is now, you know, it's a good recognition that that is an authentic threat. More people are killed every year by domestic terrorists in the U.S. than foreign terrorists. On the other hand, it invokes a law and order response rather than a political response. And the, you know, the Capitol Police who are trying to hold the line are, are the heroes of the story and the need to reinforce the police against the right-wing terrorists is the main liberal response. But these institutions, these hallowed halls of Congress are deeply unpopular. <laughs> um, the idea that we live in a rigged uh, system is dominant in you amongst working class people. And if the only people raising that we live in a rigged system that doesn't work for you and me, that doesn't work for ordinary people, if that remains a monopoly language of the right, you know, you might, they might get tossed back uh, and some of their worst elements and worst racist beliefs, um, you know, don't certainly don't have a majority. But on the other hand, people are hurting, people are suffering, people are frustrated and angry that government isn't delivering, that they're breaking promises left and right. And if it's only right-wing Republicans who are giving voice to that anger, that sense of alienation from the political establishment, then they will make gains. And that's exactly what we saw um, at this last election round is the right-wing Republicans, the populist wing of the Republican party made important gains. Um, their base continued to be mobilized um, and the, the right-wing, I mean, the left-wing lost. One of the most, or I wouldn't call it left-wing, the liberals, the Democrats lost. 
um, a phenomenon that has gained more and more media attention is school boards, which of course, you know, nobody paid attention to the school board election, but you know, most school systems are run by independent boards across the US. It's not the city council or even the state. It's these locally elected school boards. And these have become sites of intense struggle between you know, very right-wing elements uh, who are upset that uh, kids are being forced to wear masks against COVID, that are upset at um, the encouragement of vaccines, um, that are upset that uh, you know, slavery is being taught in schools as a bad thing. And they're kind of real, the ugly side of US history, which you know, more and more has come to the surface in popular consciousness through the Black Lives Matter movement and other things is being taught in this you know, massive um, campaign against what they call critical race theory, which is basically just teaching that racism is still a thing. Um, um, you know, the right wing is being mobilized to try and take over school boards. And parents and young people who don't agree with all that are fighting back. So there's you know, real battlegrounds and swings to the right and left in these local school board elections you know, that determine school policy, what gets taught, do kids have to wear masks, these kinds of questions. So it's, it's quite a interesting uh, dynamic, but in no way has the right wing, you know, been the Trump wing of the Republican Party been defeated. In some ways, Trump still is the most powerful figure behind the scenes in the Republican Party. Yeah, I, I agree with a lot of that. I think the um, it's definitely, as Ty said, the it's, it was a huge setback for Trump to lose, and uh, um, and the knock on effects of the January sixth. Uh, insurrection are definitely not to be underestimated. Uh, I think the strategy to come back, these movements still have a lot of dynamism, I think, and their strategy to come back, I think, is deeply connected to this COVID denial, anti-vax, anti-mask mask, um, sentiment among uh, a lot of right-wing people and kind of reactionary-minded, conspiracy-minded people in the U.S. And I think that the interesting thing is that far-right kind of proud boy, street thugs, like actual real Nazis, you know, people in the National Socialist club is one of them there are a few of these and um national socialist movement is another one uh and they um they don't have a mass character right they're they, you know there's probably a, a couple thousand of these people maybe in the country but this anti-covid anti-vax movement is much much bigger than that and i think the so sort of hard right street fighting uh fascist elements have identified this larger milieu as a kind of fertile recruiting ground to try to rebuild uh their forces uh and i think they are having some success i mean you see pushback against that everywhere from sort of anti-fascists and also just from, you know, just in our culture, right? The people who are angry about the January 6th um, insurrection. Uh, but I, I definitely think the biggest danger in terms of the, the rise of the far right again, or to come back from the setbacks that it's experienced is the, the thing that keeps me up at night is this actually like millions of people who um, have this kind of paranoid uh, anti kind of this COVID denialism, and which has taken on this political dimension, as Ty said, like in school boards and in, uh, you know, I, I think authentic protests against the COVID restrictions. I think, obviously, I don't agree with those. And as a socialist, there's this kind of hyper individualistic, anti communitarian character to them to not want to get a vaccine. Um, but I do think that those aren't, you know, astroturf. I think there are really are like millions of people in the US who have been taken in by this kind of right wing conspiracy narrative. And that definitely that represents a threat in terms of uh, these reactionary elements strengthening at large as well. And I mean, I think we've had a similar dynamic at play here where right-wing forces are able to tap into genuine discomforts that people have and play on them and redirect it to malevolent ends. And that's the general playbook. Another troublesome development that I want to touch on is uh, the restriction of reproduction rights in Texas and in other states. This, I think, has been watched by a lot of people. Given our recent history in relation to reproductive rights, it's still a very resonant issue in Ireland and obviously in the US. So the question is just what, what implications does this have for the broader struggle for reproductive rights in the US? It has big implications. I think, you know, we are closer to a de facto, if not explicit, overturning of Roe versus Wade, the historic Supreme Court decision that granted uh, abortion rights in the US. That's basically over in Texas. Um, and in practice, I think there's been a significant steady chipping away of 
access to abortion, if not the formal right to an abortion um, in Republican states all across the country for many years. You know, you have a situation where there's you know millions and millions who cannot uh, access abortion without traveling you know, many, many miles, getting a hotel at the nearest clinic. And then frequently you can't get it right away. You have to jump through lots of hoops and make two or three visits. And with the clock ticking of, you know, the pregnancy calendar and certain cutoff dates that are legally mandated in states, you know, in practice, the right to reproductive um, justice doesn't exist uh, for a lot of people already. And now we have clearly a Supreme Court majority who is actively seeking a way to cut away at this further, if not outright overturn it. And are you know floating various test balloons in terms of you know smaller secondary decisions in the run up to what could be was on their docket this year or, or it'll be next year when they decide um, a you know direct challenge to Roe v. Wade. So I think it is under real threat. Unfortunately, unlike in Ireland, which is a real inspiring example of what mass struggle can achieve in terms of you know winning um, uh, reproductive rights um, there a few years ago. Unfortunately, there have been no significant protests. I mean, there's been a few here and there. But the mainstream women's rights, reproductive rights organizations like NARAL, Pro-Choice America, or um, Planned Parenthood have long ago ceased to see their role in society as mobilizing movements or protests. I mean, even, you know, a few decades ago in the early 90s, the last time the Supreme Court seemed to be threatening to overturn Roe v. Wade, these same organizations that, you know, in some ways were born out of the women's rights movements and the mass struggles of the 60s, 70s, um, even in the early 90s, they still had a bit of this character and called uh, a protest of, of half a million people in Washington, D.C. that had a decisive impact. And even the Supreme Court decision at that stage sort of paid, you know, indirect homage. If you read the decision, it says, well, you know, popular opinion <laughs> uh, remains in favor of uh, reproductive rights of abortion access. And so, you know, that's that's a factor in their opinion. Um, public opinion actually has never been larger in favor of reproductive rights at this stage. A big majority support it. But um, those majorities are not well organized. The Democratic Party sees it as a dangerous issue in swing states. Um, and there is a very energized, very uh, determined uh, political minority that the Republicans have cultivated through the religious right and um, other things that are, you know, in a determined way, in a well-funded way, continue to use this issue and hammer away. And they've succeeded at packing the courts from the Supreme Court on down in many, many areas um, to have a whole legal strategy that's funded by dark money and research, you know, right-wing think tanks, you know, there's a, there's a very coherent, organized, long-standing strategy to get rid of Roe v. Wade in this country that the right-wing has, has fought for. And they um, feel themselves to be on the precipice of a great transformative victory for their side. I think at a certain stage, if they do continue to proceed, you know, a reaction will be inevitable. If, if um, there's one, you know, there's a lot of cities in Seattle, you still have access to reproductive rights in a meaningful way. If laws start to come down in Seattle and other big cities, that ban, effectively ban reproductive access, I think, you know, there will be protests, but obviously we don't want to wait for that. We need to um, be proactive to push back on this now. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I, I definitely wouldn't rule out the possibility of a kind of tip, more of a chipping away approach, but I think uh, a lot of folks, including myself, feel that a, you know, a, a more direct attack on Roe versus Wade is possible with the Supreme Court we have now with uh, conservative justices like um, Amy Cohen Barrett, who was uh, appointed by Trump, who, you know, in her academic career had railed against both the legal logic and the, the moral underpinning of, of Roe versus Wade. And there does seem to be a willingness um, to challenge it uh, in, in ways that were surprisingly direct. Like, I think a lot of people were surprised by the fact that this Texas law allowing private citizens to basically become bounty hunters to sue people who facilitated access to abortion um, was allowed to come into effect uh, without an injunction to even give the court time to re review it. I think um, some people on the right seem to have thought that was maybe an overreach, but I think there are others who see that as shoring up this right-wing coalition with the religious right and um, and also just achieving a long-standing policy uh, objective uh, that they have of uh,
of, you know, shutting down women's rights, and especially for um, poor people, right? Because we know that the rich have always had access to uh, abortions, legal or illegal, or they can afford to travel. And so this is a really an attack on working class uh, uh, women and uh, others who, uh, who need these reproductive rights. So I, I think that it's definitely possible that we see a direct attack on Roe versus Wade. I think that uh, I, it's my perspective that that would strike mass protests. Um, I think we could see uh, you know, hundreds of thousands or millions of people descending on Washington if, there was, if Roe v. Wade was directly overturned. I, I agree with Ty that that might not be uh, led or facilitated by, uh, by groups like NARAL and Planned Parenthood in the same way that it might happen in the 70s. Uh, but I think that, uh, you know, socialists, as they did in Ireland, will have an important role to play in, uh, you know, building that fighting movement for, um, for reproductive rights and, uh, you know, participating in that moment in a way that gives working people the best chance of getting what they need and also uh, building that consciousness that we need to fight in the streets. I think that's been lost. I think it was something there was a lot more awareness of that in the 60s of what was possible through mass pressure on institutions like the Supreme Court, which aren't thought of as accountable to uh, mass consciousness, even though, of course, we know that they are. So I think there, you know, that would be a, a terrible moment um, to see Roe versus Wade attacked and overturned in that way. But if it happens, you know, we're going to be ready to fight. I think that that's looking more plausible as an outcome every day. Thank you. I think something positive to finish on that a lot of listeners probably took note of was the recent strike wave in the US with a broad layer of workers becoming active in struggles throughout the country, um, deemed kind of striketober, I think was the, the name for it. And I would have seen a lot of people e even here discussing it or, or looking on um, positively. What was the nature of this strike wave and what sections of workers were involved? And also then how have the socialist left intervened in this? Has there been any relationship between the DSA and, and these layers? Yeah, it is very exciting. Um, and what's been particularly exciting is that it was overwhelmingly, it's been private sector workers and some of them quite low wage workers like, you know, Nabisco and Kellogg's um, and others who have, you know, come out on strike. The, the, the six week strike of John Deere workers from the United Auto Workers, you know, also sort of brought, you know, the so-called heavy battalions of the working class on the struggle in a way that you know, we haven't seen in many years. And so it's been, I think, quite exciting. Um, of course, I think we have to be sober and it's not, you know, in pure numbers. Um, there's been some debate in DSA that is this really a strike wave? Is it on a scale that we could call it a strike wave? What is it? Anyway, apart from a terminological debate, it's a fair point to say, you know, by most historical standards, the number of actual workdays lost in the US um, was not that significant, not huge. But against the background of, you know, decades of the union movement being pushed back, particularly in the private sector, against the background where the last significant wave of strikes in 2018 was overwhelming public sector, um, with the teachers leading the way and the private sector didn't really pick up um, there, develop there. We are seeing now a lot of private sector workers um, develop. But I do think, you know, without having rose-tinted glasses on, it does represent a shift in consciousness and a growing preparedness of significant sections of the workforce to fight back. And that, you know, you can talk about the broad historic trends of just, you know, neoliberalism, inequality, people being pushed to their limits. But I do think it's also the experience of COVID that has really um, shift, represented a certain shift in consciousness where, you know, you have the dynamic of, you know, people being considered essential workers and compelled to work through the um, the, uh, the pandemic, um, but, you know, not being ha hailed in the media as like for, as heroes at the beginning, but then not getting real uh, uh, any boosts in their pay of significance of being forced to work under very difficult conditions, being forced to continue to work long hours. And I think that combined in a strange way with another significant segment of the workforce experiencing working from home. And there's been all this hand wringing in the corporate media of like, how much are people just slogging off? And, you know, I saw a big article like, you know, rates of uh, pornography, watching and smoking pot, <laughs> drinking alcohol and all sorts of other things has gone way up. And people are worried, are people doing this during the workday? And of course, probably they are. Um, but I think it reflects that, yeah, when there's sort of, when the ruling, when the managerial um, 
you know, hammer is not hanging over working class people's heads in the same way when there's a certain um, uh, room to to not be forced to sort of, you know, slave away and alienated labor constantly. I think there has been a certain cultural awakening and realizing we really have to put up with this shit. We really have to put up with long hours, low wages, instability, disrespect, and, you know, with a tight labor market that, you know, is, I don't think that's the explanation for the strike, but that gives workers a certain amount of confidence. Like they can go find another job. Um, people know that. And so there's a certain amount of confidence. We don't have to put up with this anymore. That was shown most in the, I think, um, on the Bisco strike where DSA members did play a good role. Both Eve and I are good friends with um, um, some of the DSA leaders, um, Reform and Revolution Caucus members in Portland, Oregon, where the, the most um, combative, uh, the, the first shop to walk out went out there. They were the most combative workforce. Uh, DSA has recruited a number of those strike leaders, um, was out there at the lines, you know, pushing scabs out, you know, in, in real physical confrontations, supporting the workers on the picket lines every single day, and real bonds of solidarity were built. And they're um, the example of what Portland DSA did in solidarity with that strike. Um, is being heralded across DSA. They're they're speaking. They just spoke at a big national DSA um, uh, kind of lessons of striketober meeting that DSA members across the country were invited to to highlight what they did in Portland. Um, and it was you know our comrades in the former revolution that played a real central role in developing the strategy and approach. So we're we're in our caucus very very proud of that experience. So I think there is in DSA definitely a desire and um, and the best examples you know real mobilization to try and show support. And there's you know a grappling with how do we bring you know, socialist message and strategy, a rank and file strategy, as it's often called, into these struggles. Um, I think there's still debates and still a long ways to go beyond just sort of passive cheerleading, solidar or cheerleading solidarity to, you know, developing a coherent socialist message and strategy to transform the labor movement. But um, there's really promising beginnings there. Yeah, and, and long may it continue. And I think it's it's fantastic to hear and, and fantastic to see. I will say that was a, an extremely comprehensive overview on all the topics. So um, I think this is probably a good day, place to leave it now. And I'll just say thanks a million um, to both of you for joining me. It was an absolute pleasure. And uh, we'd love to have you back in the future to discuss what I'm sure will be a lot of developments uh, between now and, and then. So thank you, Ty. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. And thank you. Much appreciate it. Yeah, thanks so much for having us. Wake up and get ex-fucked Just think your trousers on and your last bit of makeup Your last